We've been in a collection, if you've been around for the last month or so, where we've addressed the power of silence. I'll remind you that we began, we kicked this off with the uh, words of Mozart, the famous composer. Mozart wrote, uh, was a prolific composer, wrote tens if not hundreds of thousands of notes. But he said that the most powerful aspect of music was silence. Surprising. But we have been looking at how silence does have power in our life. And over the the course of these last few weeks, we've looked at the positive power of silence. We Last week, for example, we, we saw how we need to silence the, the busyness around us, the, our voice, our schedules, in order to really know God at the level that He designed us to know Him. We sometimes run so fast that we, we can't slow down enough to know God at an intimate level. And no relationship, by the way, can really grow at any depth when it's always running. We looked at the positive power of silence in relationships that were to make every effort to be at peace with one another. And there are times when wisdom calls us to silence our voice for the sake of peace in a relationship. There are times when we, we have seen that the, the power of silence has, has played a role in advancing relationships with each other and relationships with God. Today, for today, we turn a corner and we look at the power of silence when it is not a good thing. It's a negative power of silence. When silence is present that we say, well, that's not a good thing. No, this happens, by the way, in everyday life, things that you very much will recognize. You go to your car in the morning, you stick the key in, you turn the ignition, and there's silence. Not a good thing. It's not even doing the little, you know, whatever that deal is called in a car. It's just complete silence. And like, ah, oh, man, what is that? It's not, it's, that's when silence is not good. There are times when you, uh, you might tell a joke. You think it's really funny. And uh, nobody, you know, there's that silence that follows, especially as a public speaker, that's just awfulness when you tell a joke in front of a few hundred people and it's silent. And, and then you uh, laugh and chuckle and awkwardly move forward. You might remember... Somewhere along your history in middle school or maybe elementary school or high school where you kind of had that relationship going and you, you kind of muster up the courage to utter those three words. Your mouth's a little dry. Your hands are a little cold. And you lean over and you say, well, here, here's the moment. And uh, you, you say it the first time in the relationship, I love you. And then there's silence. And then you say, like a sister. See, you know, you had the ripcord in advance. You, you had to play it just in case, you know, it, it, it didn't work out. As we grow older, there are those times in adult life that silence becomes more seriously negative. You may have somebody in your family where you've silenced it, where you you have said, you know what, we're, we're off right now. It's an awful time in relationships when that happens. There are times as an introvert in a, a marriage of now nearly 20 years there's a, that I've had to overcome the silence treatment. If you're an introvert, you play it very well. I know, I, can look, I know half the room is an introvert and you know exactly what I'm talking about. The silent treatment is cruel in a, in a relationship. And I had to learn to come out of my cave as a, as a, not only as a man, but a, but a, have an introvert tendencies where I can just think a lot in my head and not express. And when everything good, yep, yeah, it's real good. Yep. And just keep all that inside. It's not, it's not positive. Many of these things are within our grasp. But today, we're going to look at the attempt to silence our voice. Because there are places in history where this happens, where in a relationship or in an organization where there is an attempt, an intentional effort to silence. Now, 
When I was growing up, and I'm, I'm saying this, and I want to say this first, the, the story I'm about to tell you, I'm not glamorizing, I hope, for those who are young in this, in this room. I, I started smoking when I was, cigarettes when I was uh, at a very young age, unusually young. And uh, I, I uh, learned it in the Boy Scouts. I didn't just learn how to, <laughs> to tie knots. I learned a, a number of things in the Boy Scouts. And so when I say I'm not glamorizing that, I truly mean it. For those of you that are smokers in the room, you'll, you would tell easily a 12-year-old, don't do it. I, I know you would. I would have. I smoked for years. And you would say, don't do it, man. It, it is a hard racetrack to get off of. It, it just it grabs you, and, and, it's, and it's addictive, and you would say, don't do it. So by no means am I glamorizing. But I, I did start smoking early in the Scouts. And one time we were on a camping trip, and I... I had just taken a big puff on a cigarette, and about that time, my brother walked in. My older brother, two years. Uh, now, my brother uh, never took a drink, never took a puff on a cigarette. He was the Boy Scout. And so I knew when he walked in, I, I, I turned, you know, uh, pale. All the blood rushed out of my head, and I put the cigarette behind my back. The problem was I had just inhaled a big puff of it. And so my friends, oh, they, were, they just thought it was awesome, you know, grab some popcorn and watch Steve just sweat because they knew at one time I was going to have to breathe out and smoke would be coming out my mouth. And I, he stood there and I just kept hoping, I would say praying, but I wasn't in that mode back then. I just kept hoping that he would leave the room and sure enough, he didn't. And, you know, so I, it came out and, and he said, you've been smoking. And I'm like, true. Yeah, for, for quite a while. You just caught me now. And he, he played that like a trump card in a poker game. He held it over my head and just in the right moments. He didn't, he didn't use it all the time, but you know, the big moments. Anybody have a sibling that did that? Yeah. Okay. Whoa. A lot of you. Okay. Well, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Hey, Steve, can I use your bike? Nah, not today. Not today, man. I, I'm not going to use it. Okay. If you don't let me use your bike, I'm going to tell mom and dad you're smoking. All right. Use my bike. You know, he had me, right? And I would, I would literally pay him off. You can have half my Halloween candy. I mean, you know, it was major deals that I would pay him off to intentionally silence his voice. There are times in history where there is an intentionality to silence the voice of those who follow God. This goes way back. This is not just a current issue. You might remember Daniel and the lion's den. If you went to Sunday school, you learned that story. But it's all about the effort and the attempt to silence a voice. That's what the story is about. You see, there is a, there is a progression, if you notice it. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that progression today. There's a progression where the people of God and the truth that they speak at one point becomes an annoyance to those around. And I'm not talking about being disrespectful or obnoxious. I'm just saying the truth being spoke becomes an annoyance. But it doesn't stop there as countries and cultures develop. There comes a point in time where the intentionality to attempt to silence the voice is amped up in a more organized fashion. There came a time in Daniel's culture where there became a, an annoyance of those who followed God. And then we move to a law, a regulation, a legislation, an edict, as they called it back then. And the edict was that, that only people could only pray to the king, that you could not pray to anyone else. And the consequence, the penalty that came with this was that you'd be thrown in a lion's den. That's where, that's where the story comes from. Daniel, however, had the inner resolve to say, my voice will not be silenced. And he suffered the penalty for it. You might remember the early disciples. They were starting a new venture. We call it the church. Now we read back in history a couple thousand years ago, and it's easy to underestimate the struggle. I know how hard it was to plant this church with all the organizational issues and the resistance of those who wanted to do it the same all the time. And even though the church is failing, let's just keep on doing the same, the same things the same ways and that resistance. But these boys had a different level 
of resistance, an attempt to not only silence their voice emotionally, an emotional attempt, but a physical attempt. Acts chapter 4, when they were just getting things underway, we're told that the leaders that were in charge in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40, Acts chapter 5 and verse 40, they called the apostles in and they had them flogged. Now, it is so easy to read over that in your daily devotion, that word flogged. But the pain and the agony that was involved in that process of flogging, I won't go into the the gruesome details, but I'll just say generally that flesh was being ripped from their bodies. The resistance that they experienced and the attempt to silence their voice was was amped up more than any person in this room has ever experienced, I, I'm guessing, I'm assuming. So these leaders called the apostles in, they had them flogged, and they ordered them to silence. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Now let me park for a minute on our own culture. Some people refer to this country as a Christian country, a Christian nation, that it was built on Christian foundations. But as you know, if you've been in tune, things have changed, particularly over the last two to three decades. We, about two to three decades ago, began to get a sniff of what we would call a post-Christian culture. What that means, without going into a depth of definitions that make our minds swim, what that means is that the, the church began to become irrelevant in this culture. We lost our voice, and we were no longer the beacon to which culture looked to for truth. We, we never, we, 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 our, our presence in the culture began to diminish. But now, after being 20 to 30 years in a post-Christian culture, we move into a new phase. I've spoken about it a few times with our church family. And the reason to speak about it is to prepare ourselves for a future that I promise you is much different than you might have in your mind. Because what's happening now in our culture is that in a post-Christian culture, the first phase is irrelevance. We lost our voice. Then what happens is the voice of culture becomes larger than the voice of God's truth. But then we move into another phase, and that phase is the annoyance phase. That the voice and the words of truth, now they become to become annoying, an irritation in the culture. And then what happens from that point is legislation. Just like we've seen all throughout history. God would say, hey, no surprise. There's no surprise. I saw it in Daniel's day. I saw it in Moses' day. I saw it in the disciples today. But because we've lulled ourselves to sleep in the, in the American church culture, it might slip by us and we'll find ourselves in it before we know it. Thus, my responsibility to speak to it in an open forum because you won't hear it on the national news at 6.30. Let me, let me promise you that. There is now... A, an attempt to silence our voice in legislation. You say, are you kidding me? Or, I, I haven't caught that on the evening news. Let me bring you up to date with some current events. I was just reading this week in Oregon. Aaron and Melissa Klein were found guilty of discrimination by the state just this week and could face up to $150,000 in fine for not baking a cake for a same-sex wedding. Now, let me make note that this is not bashing those of other faiths, not bashing those of other sexual orientation. This is not bashing those who believe differently. That's not what this is about. What this is about is living in a democratic society where everyone should have an equal voice. I was just in one of my favorite restaurants this past week. Above the coffee uh, bar, they have a shelf, and on that shelf... There's a statue of Buddha. I'm fine with that. This is your restaurant. Put 1,500 Buddhas in the restaurant. I don't have to go if I don't want. That's your, you have the democratic right to your voice in this country. Beside that statue of Buddha 
is a statue uh, of Brahma, which is the end of the um, a Hindu god. It's a, the elephant-shaped uh, face with multiple arms. Don't know if you've seen that picture. Fine. Your restaurant. You put up as many statues. I can decide whether I want to go or not. I decide to go because I like the food much more than the statues. So I go anyway and love the owners. I actually have a great relationship with the owners. No problem. What I notice, and maybe you've noticed, is that that's becoming more acceptable, but I don't see a lot of crosses around. I'm a member of the botanical gardens here in town. They have multiple statues of Buddha all throughout. Fine. Doesn't bother me one bit. This is America. You put what does begin to question in my mind is the absence of a cross anywhere. And not only that, we've moved from that, that, that mindset to now intentionally we're going to cause you to take down the Ten Commandments in certain places. Well, wait a minute. That's where we throw the penalty flag. Why is it, why is no one saying you must take down these Buddha and Brahma statues, but we've got to take down the cross and we've got to take down the Ten Commandments? How come we do not have the equal right to speak the truth as we see it without bashing anybody else? Are you with me? That's the agenda. That's the agenda. I'll remind you that we're, our faith is steeped in love. This has nothing to do with we hate those people. And please hear me clearly that no one should stand on a street corner and say, you know, gays are going to hell. That's ineffective. It's not loving. It's not the right timing. It's, it's relationally moronic and it doesn't get the job done. I hope that's clear enough. I'll remind you that, that our neighbors who are homosexual, and we've known them now 12, 13 years. I told you last week my wife was standing at the mailbox crying because her two best friends are dying of cancer. One will probably die this week. And this week it was my turn. And I stood at the mailbox. And I hugged her as we both trembled crying. And I whispered into her ear, this is too much for a human being to carry, isn't it? And she just broke down. And I said, that's why we have God. You see, if I had a sign that says gays are going to hell marching posted in her front yard, I would have distanced myself. This is not what this is about. It's the ability to be able to whisper to my neighbor who's going through the darkest time of her life that God is still in play. Don't take that voice away from us. We have the right to speak and silence cannot be forced upon us. In Oregon, this baker had the right to say, this is against my beliefs. This is not what I do and I have a right to bake a cake or not bake a cake. In Wisconsin, a 15-year-old boy was reprimanded and reportedly punished by his school for backing traditional family in adoption cases. New Jersey, a high school teacher was suspended for stating her biblical beliefs about homosexuality on her personal Facebook page while at home, off the clock. In Illinois, a university professor was fired for saying that homosexual acts are morally wrong. And we can't forget about this grandmother who's a florist in Washington State who's being sued by the attorney general for refusing to provide flowers for a same-sex wedding to a man who she has been a close friend with for 10 years. I don't know if you catch it or not, but things are changing. Wake up. That's the message that we're getting from this. It's serious. It's serious. Now, I say this because this country was founded on the principle that Jefferson spoke. Watch these words. Jefferson wrote these words, and he says, Can the liberties of a nation, the freedoms of a nation, be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, which is a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift from God? Our voice from God, in other words, is a gift. It's a privilege that everyone has. Everyone has this, the ability to, to exercise this gift. That is the agenda to which I address today. I hope that I'm completely clear on what we're speaking about. Everyone has equality. Now, I don't know if you caught the, uh, the story about the Benham brothers. Now, the Benham brothers 
uh, David and Jason Benham. They're, um, they are, uh, they flip homes. They had a successful, uh, for more than a decade, a successful run at uh, real estate and flipping homes and whatnot. So HDTV, the home and garden TV channel, tapped them to do a, a reality show. And the reality show was going to be Flip It Forward. And they were going to find people who found it hard to uh, afford a home. And they were going to go in and buy these homes at a low cost and fix them up and flip them for them. And then they would, you know, offer it to the, the families. A really, really cool show. They're both, they, both of these brothers are strong believers and followers of Jesus Christ. There is a, an organization that tracks conservative comments that are made. And this organization caught wind that in a prayer meeting before the Democratic National Convention, that these two brothers were in a prayer meeting and they were praying, God, forgive us because our voice has not been present in this culture. Forgive our forgive us, God. They're speaking of themselves. Forgive us for being silent in a culture that needs to not be hammered with truth, but offered the gift and the love of truth. And in that meeting, they began to talk about the traditional family that is found as a biblical principle. Now, we, we talk about homosexuality here, but abortion or being, uh, living together before marriage or, you know, addiction, all, all of these different things are, we just have, this happens to be a hot topic. And so they began to say that these are our beliefs in a, in a closed meeting. These are our beliefs. And they, are very, very um, open to say, we have so many homosexual friends. It's not about that. It's just the agenda to allow us to, 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 that is not allowing us to have a voice. And so when they voiced that and HDTV caught wind of that, they canceled the, the show just like that. And what their, their words are, I think, so appropriate that I've, I brought them to you today. And here's what David Benham said. My brother and I are perfectly okay with a gay-owned t-shirt company refusing to make t-shirts that say homosexuality is a sin. That's your right. That's your voice. And we're fine with a Jewish baker refusing to cater an event on the Sabbath. And we certainly agree with the gun range owner refusing to let self-identifying ISIS members practice shooting at his facility. These are their constitutional rights as Americans. His brother, Joel Benham, uh, Joel, uh, Joel, I said that in the first service, Jason Benham, we have a Joel Benham in our church. His brother, Jason Benham, said this, never have I ever spoken against homosexuals as individuals and gone against them. Now watch, this is it. Don't miss this. I speak about an agenda. And that's really what the point of this is, is that there is an agenda that is seeking to silence the voices of men and women of faith. That's what it is. That's, that's what we're seeing. Now, lest you think, okay, we're going to spend the rest of the morning talking about this. We're not. We're not. Because what can so subtly happen is that we can get into an us versus them mentality and build a subculture that's in a silo and saying they're bad and we're not. Not the issue on the table. There is an attempt by some people to silence the voice of men and women of faith. That effort comes from the outside in. But we must understand that that is not the only effort and the attempt to silence our voice. Because there is also an inner attempt that comes from the inside out. In other words, let me say it this way. That the attempt... And the effort to silence our voice and when our, we become voiceless, it is also a choice that we can make that no one is forcing us to take. Martin Luther King said it well. The words are printed in your, your weekly this, this week. And, but I'm going to put them up on the screen just to review. Martin Luther King said these words that are so appropriate. And he captures, he, he was so articulate in the way he spoke. And he captures the heartbeat of this in, in several of these words which are just so carefully uh, expressed. He said, history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period 
in the 1950s and 60s, the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor. Wow, what a, what a great word to capture. It was not the strident clad, clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. What King is saying here is, you have not only the privilege, but the opportunity. And that was the crushing blow to this, to the advancement of this movement. He goes on to say these words, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. You see, there were times when the opportunity was there to speak like Peter, who stood behind, beside that fire and that young servant girl. It didn't take a lot to push his house of cards over. That young servant girl said to Peter and looked him in the eye and says, I recognize you. You were with Christ. You know how we do in this culture? That's what he said. His silence said, I'm not with Christ. I'm not going to advance this thing. She said it again. You were with him, weren't you? It's that choice of silence that comes. No one in that moment forced Peter to become voiceless. You remember Elijah standing before the nation of Israel. And there came a point. He said, guys, I'm drawing a line in the sand. Who are you going to choose? The living God or this false God called Baal that you're building all these altars to in 1 Kings chapter 18, 21. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? And if the Lord is God, then follow him right now. And But if Baal is God, then you follow him. And the people, silent. They said nothing. So today, we're going we're gonna to hover in the first part of the book of Exodus. For those who have had their Bible and you want to hover with me there. Because what was happening is yet another time in history... We find God's people being silenced by this attempt by outside forces. But what Moses teaches us in this moment is that it wasn't limited to outside forces. That there were inside forces that were attempting to silence the voice of God and truth. You might remember that God's people were planted in Egypt because of the history of how they got there was Joseph and then Joseph brought his brothers and his, then finally his family and his father and then they lived and they, and they began to grow. They began to increase. And the same thing happened is that for a while the country was blessed. The country of Egypt in this story was blessed because truth reigned, because God was alive, and the people, the followers of God, namely Joseph's family, Jacob and his family and his sons, they began to be, be uh, increase and be in favor because God was there. And then they grew, and the voice began to become an annoyance. And then it was like, these guys, honestly, they're going to take over the place. And that's really annoying, the people of Egypt, the leaders of Egypt were saying. And then they said, well, let's move to legislation. Let's begin to attempt to silence their voice. And we'll do it through slavery. We will enslave the God's people because slaves don't have a voice. So they organized quite a bit of organizing to enslave that many people. They, they organized and God's people and that point of history became voiceless. And that is not the intent of God ever. Ever. So God said, I am going to send a voice. And his name is Moses. Moses, I am tapping you to be the voice for my people. To create in them, to build in them confidence that they are still the people of God. Would to God that every preacher across this country would say to the people of God, don't give up. Don't be over amplified by the voice of this culture. Love them with all your heart, but don't be silenced. Why? 
Because eternity is at stake. This is not about ramrodding our beliefs. This is about bringing to the world who is caught in sin and darkness a message of light and salvation. That there is only one Savior. I know that people think, oh, that's that's too aggressive. I'm glad there's only one because I couldn't make the choice if there were two. God said, let me make it easy for you. One, you get it? Got it. Having one Savior is not narrow-minded. It's grace. He knew how stupid we were and we only needed one Savior. So Moses comes along into an environment where there's an outside voice attempting to silence the people of God. But what we learn from Moses today is a, is a short list of internal things, internal attempts to silence our voice. Now, why a list? Because I'm, I'm typically not a list type of guy. Let me tell you why. Because when I look at how Moses handled this, I see patterns that I see in people all the time. And I'm, when, I, when I'm looking at a list, all of these things on this short list may not hit you, but I promise that one will. That's why we're going to look at his life. Now, Moses comes down, and he's supposed to be the spokesman for God, the voice of God. And he's teaching us the internal things that attempt to silence our voice. The first thing is sin. Sin silences our voice. What do you mean by that? Well, you know how it is. No, I'm not. We're all sinners. But when we get caught in a cycle of sin, of the same sin that goes over and over and over and over, do you know what we do? We do exactly what Adam did. You know what Adam did? You remember, right? He hid. And when we get caught in sin, what happens is we feel like, I I can't, you know, I'm so worried about getting caught. I'm so worried about not, you know, trying to get it right and all this that I I really have lost my voice because sin separates us from God and we don't feel like we're on the edge. So Moses looks out one day and he sees how his people are being treated. And instead of handling it in a respectful way, he takes the, the sign and says, you're going to hell and puts it in his and puts it in the front yard. He takes that approach, only it was worse. He goes down and kills the guy. Now, let's get it straight. Nobody's killing anybody, right? We got that straight. God, God, that wasn't part of God's plan. He took it a little overboard, would you not say? Then the following day, somebody said, hey, I got a smoking gun, Moses. I got a photo of you on my iPhone, and I saw a rock with blood in your hand. And Moses, the guy who was raised in a palace that God put there through, you know the story, miraculously escaped a holocaust of babies, and God preserved him. God put him miraculously through these crazy relationships in the palace to grow up in an Egyptian palace to learn fluently how to speak Egyptian because he's going to be the spokesperson to be educated in the highest school of Egypt so he could articulate that God had his hand on him all along. So at the point, after 40 years, God's like, okay, I've trained this kid for 40 years. Now it's time, Moses. What what are you doing? Oh, you killed somebody. Sometimes I feel sorry for God. Do you not? Like, gee whiz, what? I paid for your education, dude, and you blew it. And in Exodus chapter 3, God said, I got to get you back in the game because, see, Moses separated himself from the game after he killed somebody for not 40 minutes, 40 hours, 40 days, 40 weeks, 40 months. He took himself out of the game for 40 years, and that's what sin does. I know. I'm an expert in sin. (laughs) A little awkward. Some of you are like, you are? 
Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. This is after he murdered the guy, and this is now he's 80 years old, 40 years after he's been on the, on the run. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the reason that he was on the far side of the desert is because he took himself out of the game because he was in sin. And he didn't keep short accounts. Look, we're all sinners, but the point is that we keep short accounts with God. We don't let it go on and on and on and on, not before God. We bring it and say, God, I want to not be on the far side of the desert. I want to be in the game, so I'm sorry for that. And I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to give me power over this, this thing in my life, because we all have them, because I want my voice not to be silenced. Sin has a way to attempt to silence your voice. You might have thought, oh, it's just me and the pri- it's just me and the and my privacy. I'm doing no, it's a bigger deal. You may be silencing your voice by the lifestyle you're choosing. Jonah knew it. God asked him to go over here and he decided to go over here. And he blew it. And meanwhile, listen, meanwhile, there are thousands of souls in Nineveh. Because Jonah is on a stupid boat in sin. Don't underestimate the ramifications of being on the far side of the desert. Now Moses teaches us another thing that I see so pervasive in the body of Christ. And it's this. Worrying about our own inadequacy. Worrying about our own inadequacy. I, I can't say anything for God. I, I, you know, I didn't go to cemetery like Steve did. A seminary, excuse me. <laughs> what happens if I develop a relationship with a, a Hindu and he asks me or he or she asks me, how does that relate to Christ? How does... Brahman relate to Jesus Christ. And I'm like, oh, I don't know the answer. I, 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 and so I, I better not say anything. What if I've never read, read the Quran? I, I, I wouldn't know how to compare this. But what I would say to you is two things. The first thing is, you know that the world is in sin. And we're locked in the kingdom of darkness. And this is why Christ was the solution to all mankind That he is the savior of the world. It's that simple. You may not know all the answers. But I, if you're a follower of Christ, you better know that life doesn't end here with your last breath. But we have hope above all men beyond the grave because Christ came back. You know that much, don't you? Thank you, all dozen of you. It's awesome. See, Moses came to God in, in verse 11 of Exodus 3. And he said to him when God called him to be the voice, Who am I, God? Who, uh, honestly, you got the wrong guy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites, the Israelites out of Egypt? God, who am I? I can't even find Obadiah in the Bible. Hey, I can't either. Don't worry about it. I look in the table of context. I know that's probably just diminished your confidence in me, but don't, don't worry. I'm trying to make you feel better. Who am I to, get to talk to that guy in the snack room? Because if I, I bring up a conversation, I'm just going to have egg all over my face, you know, because I don't have all the answers. But watch, listen. What we do and what Moses was doing inadvertently is because we worry about our inadequacy so much, what we're actually saying is that God is inadequate. That God can't take over. That when Christ said, hey, don't worry about the words, man, I'll, I'll infuse you with the power of the Holy Spirit. What we're saying is that it all rests on me. 
And my eloquence and my answers and my intellect and my logic, it all rests on me. And God says, it never has and it never will. You got to rest in the power of God to speak through you in simplicity. And God would say to Moses, I didn't put you there, son, because of your adequacy. I put you there because I am more than adequate for you. God explained this to him very clearly in Exodus chapter 4 in the very next chapter. In chapter 4 and verse 10, Moses said again, Oh God, you must have missed a memo. Now I know in Psalm 139, you know, which hadn't been written, but I know you know our rising, our falling, our coming in, our going out. You know every thought before we... But God, you must have missed the fact that I've never been eloquent. You must have dropped the ball there, God. Neither in the past nor since you've spoken to me at that burning bush. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And God said, can I remind you of something, son? Can I remind you that I am the Lord your God who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And I love the next two words. This is God speaks in a quiet voice sometimes, but I believe he shouts sometimes. And he's saying to Moses, now go. Quit fooling around with this silliness as if your adequacy could get the job done. Ah, shut up. I sometimes feel God say that to me. Aren't we silly at times that when I get some vast amount of knowledge, then I can speak. It's a lie. And you know where that comes from. God said, no, quit. I have made your mouth. I made your ears. I made your eyes. I made your senses. I made your logic. And I will fill in the gap. Now go. Quit. This attempt to silence your voice. The next thing is a huge thing for us. Everybody knows it. Fear. Fear. You see, fear is born in these words. What if? What if? See, I'm, I'm this way sometimes. I, I'm, I'm guessing you are too. Okay, I, I got some friends that really want to go camping. We took a hike in Mayaka Park a, a couple weeks ago. I, honestly, I, I'm like, okay, what if I get rushed by a boar? Oh, you laugh. You think that's funny. <laughs> there are boars out there, you know. And I saw some boar tracks. You know what he said to me? Dude, I've been camping for 20 years and I never got rushed by a boar. All right. Everything can be, you know, I, I go to the ocean. I learn to surf. Some of you guys are surfers. I go to surf. But what, what if it hits me in the head? What if the surfboard hits me in the head? What if I drown? What if, what if, you know, I just, so the what if draws you to, to watch TV, but wait a minute, you can get electrocuted while you're watching TV, can't you? So what if I get electrocuted? I can't even do that. See, Moses says in verse four, uh, one of chapter four, he says, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me or say, oh, the, God hadn't spoken to you, he didn't appear to you. What if the guy at work says, oh, you're an idiot, you're a narrow mind, you're a bigot. You're, oh, you're one of those. Okay, Jesus freak, I got gotcha. you. What if they say that? What if I lose my job? If I'm doing it appropriately, not on, not on the clock and taking up job time, obviously. But what if they make fun of me? What if I become the coffee break room joke? You see how fear begins to make an attempt on our lives. It's not only speaking the gospel truth to others. Sometimes it's with other Christians. And I got to say something hard to, to Caleb, but um, what if what if he what if he leaves the church? It's a question that many pastors ask. Well, what if what if he gets angry with me? What if he talks behind my back? You see, fear takes the the volume knob of our voice. And turns it down to zero. There have been times. Where I've been so fearful. To speak the truth. How about you? And you have to come to your senses in that moment. And think. It's not about me man. It's not about me. One more. 
I think there is an attempt, particularly in the church. Our culture has grown in the church to a place of what I would call the recipient mindset. That's why we, in our church, we talk, we have, you have questions on your handout today to engage people in small groups to talk about what we've talked about today, to try to break away from, okay, you listen to me speak, you, you take it in, you go home and have, have a good week, but to engage your voice in this conversation. That's why we call them conversations. To get you active and so that you begin to talk. That's, that's the purpose and the reason of why we do that, by the way. And not just some uh, random study or just random questions to engage that. But what happens a lot in the Christian culture is that you have the pro, the professional up front. And then we begin to compare. So it's a comparison thing that silences our voice. Like, I, I can never throw the ball like Joe, man. That guy can, I'll tell you, that guy can preach. Well, he has all the answers. Have you seen how fast he can turn to Obadiah? It's amazing. How do you spell Obadiah? I, I don't even know how to spell it. There's that inner voice. I don't even know how to spell it. I'm a Bible moron. I mean, because he's so hard. You know how that goes? I don't care if you've been a Christian two days, two months, 22 months, 22 years. God can use you. God can use you. You are you you it is not about you it is about God speaking truth and sometimes the most I the more I fumble the ball the more God gets the credit. I I'll never forget I think I told you one time I was sitting at a table and there was this guy in a music school and uh he he was uh, in AA he struggled with an addiction and and uh I said man I was a brand new Christian. I mean, I, I, I knew the answers to three questions, and uh, that was it. And so I, I said, uh, man, I kept praying. I'm like, God, I'm so nervous, and I'm so bothered by my nervousness, God. I want to be so bold for you, and, and I'm scared, but I'm not going to let it get in my way because I was, I was, when I say gloriously saved that sounds like church lingo I, I i mean amazingly saved from from a lot of stuff and i felt like i owed it to this guy we were painters we painted buildings it was a it was a job for me when i was in school and i i owe it to this guy so i got to i got the courage to at least say hey can we have lunch together in the midst of the fear the fear doesn't like whip go away now like, okay now i'm ready right Soldiers charging a hill, I promise you, they're afraid. But cowards run from fear. Those who are courageous march through it. And so I invited this guy to lunch. And right at the last minute, this other friend of mine who was a total intellect, he played the sitar. You know what I'm saying? You know that big, and it comes from the Indian culture. I just feel, you know, when people play something like that, I'm like, they're smart. That's a stupid stereotype. But anyway, and he had this little goatee. So he looked like, you know, he would be the guy to play sitar. Vote it most likely to be a sitarist, right? And he, and he would just, he would, as he would, as you would talk, he would twirl that dang goatee. And he would just like stare through your soul. Like, I don't care if I said carrots or orange, I'd feel stupid that it was probably the wrong deal, you know? So I finally got the courage to take this guy out to lunch who was in AA. And at the last minute, this fr this other friend, goatee guy, said, hey, I'll go with you. I'm like, oh, no, God, please stop him. Let him trip over the sitar or something. Don't do it to me. You know what God was doing? You really want to, you really want to speak for me, God, Steve? We're going to amp it up. I got sitar man coming. Like, no. I bumbled the gospel that day, but I spoke it the best I knew. I'd only been a believer just months. I said, Scott, you know, I notice that you're caught in a habit that I was caught in. And uh, 
Christ saved me, man. And I wasn't for one second turning my eyes towards Sitar Man, who was sitting there twirling that goatee. <laughs> he was here, Scott was here, and I was penetrating. And you know what, Scott? I'm going to tell you what I know of right now. Jesus loves you. And he wants to change your life. You know what Sitar Man said? Scott, he's got that right. He said, for about a decade, I'm like, well, how come you didn't go first? I'm never sweating it, man. Fear attempts to shut our voice down from the inside out. The government and the media, they may try, but they, these, inner, these inner attempts are very real, are they not? Fear and comparison and worrying about our inadequacy and all, all of these things, a lack of confidence and sin, these, these things from the inside out attempt to silence our voice. And I would say to us today, as we close, that I, I want to make sure that you don't miss the bigger game that's at stake, the bigger picture. Because you might think, oh, it's just the guy at work or the gal at work or the person in my neighborhood, my next door neighbor, whoever that might be. It, it just might be that. No, it's a bigger game. You see, the theme of the scripture has always and will always be this. Don't miss it if you've missed anything I've said today. The theme of the scripture is the advancing of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. There is a theme, a sub-theme of love. There's a sub-theme of grace. There's a sub-theme of truth. There's a sub, many sub-themes, but the main primary theme, which all themes come under the umbrella, is that God, from the very beginning of even placing Adam in the garden, and even before, when, the, when Satan fell, very heavy, but the theme of the scripture is that God is advancing a kingdom, but he's not advancing the kingdom freely. He's advancing the kingdom against the kingdom of darkness against the resistance of the kingdom of darkness where we are constantly facing the attempt from our enemy to silence the voice of truth because from the day one that he fell from heaven, Satan has wanted to halt the progress of the kingdom of God because he is profoundly and deeply jealous. Don't. Ever let that escape your consciousness. It may look like the media. It may look like legislation. It may look like fear or sin. But take my words from the scripture today. If you don't take mine, take them from the scripture today. That there is a player. A player behind all of it. With a higher and greater purpose. How do you know that, Steve? Because you feel whiffs of it coming up between the lines. The, the, the church was now exploding. The disciples, the apostles were exploding the cause. And the leaders there, they wanted to put a stop. But watch what they say in Acts chapter